0: Keith.
1: You, Keith, most important thing that I can share with you is, by God's grace, Alcoholics Anonymous is full of people like you, and a little effort on my own, I haven't had to take a drink or use any kind of narcotics since May 11th, 1976, and for that I'm especially grateful. You bet. My home group's a dog on the roof, and uh, it's 44 years old. I didn't start it. I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm the oldest member of it. I'm just a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's my home group. I went there when I first went to AA, and I'm still there. And uh, I'm grateful for my home group. Uh My wife, uh, Sue, uh, and I were uh, asked to come and participate on your program, and uh really grateful uh, to be able to do that. Uh Some guy with a bunch of ribbons told me that Sandy Beach is uh uh, stranded in Atlanta, and I said, well, next time he calls, i well, I tell him that don't worry, Sue will talk for him tonight, and he'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> he'll figure out if he has to walk, he'll be here. But, uh, I'm really grateful to be here, I'm glad some of my friends from around the country have been able to, uh, come over and, uh, support our, uh, program and, uh, see them, a bunch of guys from around the country that we've met, uh, as we're busy in the program, doing things, going places, and, uh, you know, it's really uh it's really good. I have friends, I have long uh lasting relationships with the uh, people I met in Alcoholics Anonymous and that's really good. Uh, I'm grateful for that. I hadn't I had none of that when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I can assure you that. I um uh, I don't know if I was born an alcoholic or not, but when I took my first drink an alcoholic was born and uh I drank at an early age so the the ball was rolling. I'm at least a fifth or sixth generation alcoholic. My dad's an alcoholic. His dad was an alcoholic. His dad was an alcoholic. His dad was an alcoholic. And that's about as far as I checked. And, uh, that's enough. But I, uh, I tell you that for one reason primarily is, uh, that, uh, uh, each, each generation got worse and worse and worse. And, uh, and it got to me, it got worser. And, uh, I have all the character defects of all the other alcoholics in my family. And, uh, I was the family's worst, best example. And, uh, and I can assure you that each one of the different uh, alcoholics in my family, uh, was a different kind of an alcoholic, like in the book talks about there's different types of alcoholic and alcoholics in the big book and, uh, what have you. But, uh, I'm at least a type four alcoholic. I was insanely drunk most of the time, uh, you know, given an opportunity or whatever. But, uh, it was just a, a natural state for me. Uh, I don't think growing up in an alcoholic home made me an alcoholic, but if you're a budding alcoholic, it's a good place to start because there's always booze there. You know, and, uh, it's hid somewhere in a clothes hamper, in a, in a toilet, underneath the sink, and, you know, out in the bushes, and in the backseat of the car, and the trunk of the car, and in the attic, anywhere you want, you wouldn't just stumble into a drink of any kind. Uh, that's how I learned to drink most anything, you know. Uh, I didn't, I grew up in a Texas, Oklahoma panhandle. Uh, kind of no man's land, and uh, they, you know, it was a uh, county option, it was dry out there, so uh, bootleggers, you never got a bottle that didn't have a seal broke, and uh, you could take your own uh, bottles, uh, or jugs, or jars to the bootlegger, moonshiner, and you, it would fill it for two bucks, man, that guy's shaking his head, he knows, you could get some other things down there too, couldn't you, for th- 2 dollars yeah, and, uh. I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you, that's good drinking. I didn't drink it. You didn't drink that stuff because it had a foo-foo hanging in it or some kind of a cherry floating in it. Yeah, you'd hold it up look like white gasoline, man. It had things floating in there. But it it would get you downtown right away, I'm telling you. And uh, it just come out of your pores and just made you smell just like you'd been drinking all day, you know. And uh, most everybody that I drank with, hung around with, that my folks did, uh, uh, drank all the time. Drank that kind of stuff, and uh, most of them uh, didn't work much. Uh, they did; they were hustling and stuff. But uh, you know, growing up on the bottom of the family tree down there, well, I kind of had to survive. I I grew up with selfish, self-centered, self-centered, self-seeking, insane people, and I'll tell you what: if you can get out of a family like that alive, you're a survivor.
0: <laughs> and
1: and uh, I'm, I'm 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 grateful for that because they ended up in AA full of selfish, self-centered, self-centered, self-seeking, insane people, and they said you're home. You know, Uh, all my character defects of survival in my own family have been very important to survive here in Alcoholics Anonymous, so I don't hold it against them at all. My dad's still alive. He's 89, he has 26 years of sobriety, and uh, you bet. uh, I have a little seniority on him, I don't let him forget that. Uh, My dad was a lawyer and I never resented that. I always needed one. <laughs> you know, kept him on retainer. We drank together, we had drinking buddies, you know, we had crime partners, we did all kinds of things, you know, but I was certainly glad that uh, I had always had a lawyer with me when I was uh, uh, doing uh things, because I needed one, I can assure you that, but uh, I, I survived out of that. Uh, I got in trouble, I got in a lot of trouble, like I say. I was drinking and, uh, and what have you, uh, at a very early age, and so by the time I was 12 years old, uh, and growing up in a farming community, I could drive when I was 12. I got a farm permit so I could drive a car and by the time I was 12 and a half I was in trouble for driving a, an automobile and uh, leaving the scene of an accident and which became a regular thing for me. Uh, and But when I was 12 and a half years old I they locked me up. They didn't have uh, any fancy uh, uh, anything for kids. I was born in 1940 so by the time I was uh, you know, 12 and a half years old is 52 in there, long in there. So they didn't have any fancy places. They just, uh, they had some uh, reform school kind of things where they put problem kids and I ended up in there and, uh, and, uh, you know, there was just a bunch of other kids in there just like me and we didn't, uh, even though we were locked up behind uh barbed wire fence and what have you, why well, we still, we still sought out various types of, uh, of, uh, chemicals. Uh, just simply because, uh, they were doing it when I got there and I didn't want to be different. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a problem. I never, uh, I never did, you know, really study all those pharmacy books and all that kind of stuff. Get all them fancy drink downs and, and anything like that. I'm a pig myself. I'd do anything anytime, anywhere. You name it, and I'd do it. I never have had a mammogram, uh, or a pap smear, you know. Uh, but I'm a blackout drinker and I drank the people would have given me, those.
0: <laughs> 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 but I, uh,
1: I do it all, man. I did it all. If you're talking about drugs bothers you, why? Well, read the big book. There's 43 stories in the big book and 17 of them talk about substance other than alcohol. So, you know, you could fit if you're a hope to die dope fiend. If you're a hope to die dope fiend here this afternoon, you could fit in here. If you lower your standards just a little, you know.
0: <laughs>
1: but I used to smoke a little weed, drink a little beer, and then I'd smoke a little weed, and then I'd chew a little speed, and then I'd snort a little coke, and then I'd drink a little whiskey and forget what it was I was going to do. I couldn't remember, you know. I, I did it all, you know. Whatever you had, that's what I did, you
0: know.
1: And... uh while I was in there, I started a little, uh, some, I started some abandonment issues, you know. Women, well-meaning women would come along and, uh, promise me everything if I'd sign on that little piece of paper and then they would, uh, annul me. And,
0: uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. I didn't care. I, you know, whatever. I was, a, it was a boring afternoon, so I got married. What the hell? Uh, but, uh, I was enhancing my income a little. Transporting some non habit forming outside issues, and, uh, uh, and I had a hit and run, uh, and there happened to be some burlap bags in the trunk, uh, of the car that I borrowed. <laughs> uh, uh, I never borrowed a car but what, I it didn't wreck it for you, you know? And, uh, anyway, I was down in Fort Worth, Texas, and, uh, they kind of frowned on that. Back then, if you got caught with a one roach, one marijuana cigarette, you did 25 to life. I thought that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. I'm not even going to live that long, you know. <laughs> and uh, but they frowned on it. And as a result of that, why I had to uh do a little time down there. Back in, they didn't have no A and A, you know. They didn't have all that stuff uh, in there, you know. You just did your time, try to stay out of trouble, and and I did, and uh, and I got out. And of course, as soon as I got out, I got 100 bucks in a new suit, and I got. Took me to the train station, and I I got a jug of whiskey, and I got on the train, and I headed for home. I'm one of them kind of alcoholics that always goes back home. You got to rest, so you got to go back home. I go back home. Need to go home. And, uh, you know, uh, I got drunk, and my friends picked me up at the train station. They were drunk, and, and uh, had to get a push start on their truck, you know, because they'd been sitting there listening to radio for a couple of days.
0: <laughs> Run the battery
1: down good old boys, you know, and uh, Oily and Goose, and we got us a, we got us a run at it, and uh, headed down for, they said there a big dance down on Wolf Creek, so we headed down there, got in there about midnight, and, and uh, I wanted everybody to know I was home, and uh, so I started to fight, and the uh, fight got out of hand, so I had to hide. Uh, I may be sick, but I'm not stupid, man. When you start a fight and it gets out of hand, you need to hide. you got to find a place. That's how you become a winner. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I ducked in, uh, ducked in a woman's restroom. There's a lady standing by the door, and I said, Tell me whenever the, you know, fight's over. And I went and hid, and, and pretty soon she came in and said, You can come out now. The fight's over, and the band's playing. And I asked her for a dance, and that was, uh, 44 years ago, baby, and we're still dancing. Yeah. Yeah, we're soulmates. We figured we'd stay together and give two other people a rest, you know. We're soulmates. There ain't nothing you can do to human body we ain't done to each other, I'll guarantee you. <laughs> nothing. Except die. And uh we dated for two weeks and uh and they nicknamed us uh Hatchet and Hammer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: now we're just Bonnie and Clyde of AA and L N on. Uh, so, but I'm telling you, we had a blast. We had a blast. We started right off. Just kick-started that thing. It was so painful it had to be love. You know? And uh it's just a, 44 years ago. It's just like the county fair. It gets bigger and better every year, man. I'm telling you. And, uh, we, we just, uh, hit off and, uh, and started a roll. And, uh, and I just, uh, you know, did the things, uh, I normally do, which is hustle. I like the deal. I don't care if it's 50 cents or 50 million, deal me in. And I got in the deal and, uh, and away we went. And, uh, Sue had a job. That was what attracted me to her. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, she did, and uh she she uh had a good job and uh, and her boss was a real enabler and uh but a good guy and uh he took care of her and kept her money and stuff and and then uh she said she was pregnant, and I don't remember that uh tell you, I must have been crossing over the invisible line when we had that discussion <laughs> but uh but I said all right, so we got married and uh a lot of things were happening in there to me you know i mean uh uh I got drafted and uh I went and did my thing and then I, some guy was yelling, spitting my face and I hit him and, uh, and so they, they didn't want any of that. So they sent me back to two. Yeah. You know, uh, because when she spits in my face and I hit her, she hits back. You know? <laughs> she didn't give me an undesirable. I'll guarantee you that. And I went back home and we took off again and, and started doing things. We had a little girl and, uh, you know, and I I tried to do the right thing during that, I'm drinking and all that stuff all the time, and and uh I wanted to be, you know, down deep inside, I think it's the definition of an alcoholic is a drunk with a conscience, and uh, periodically, you know, I would want to do the right thing, and I would try to do the right thing to the best of my ability, and but I'm the kind of guy, you know, goes over and gets the Easter bunny for the kid, and I get the one with rainworm. you know,
0: <laughs>
1: everybody gets ringworm but the old drunk, you know, you ever notice that? Oh man. If there's bad luck, if I didn't have bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all. You know how it is? It's just the way it was. But we never stopped rolling and I got in trouble and we, uh, well, I talked to my very best friend, a guy named Lion Shorty, and he told me I could get a job on a ranch 40 miles west of Long Beach and, uh, that's Ocean. I didn't know that. But, uh, uh we, we, uh, stacked her out and, uh, loaded up, looked like the grapes of wrath and, Uh, we left in the middle of the night in an old station wagon with a trailer on the back and what stuff we had and uh, our dog had a German Shepherd dog and a cat and a kid and me and Sue and and, uh, this friend of mine came by and gave me a bunch of pills and a bag. He said here this will help you Uh, except he mixed he mixed the uppers with the downers and I I just reach in there and get some you never knew what I was going to do I might just be down for a couple of days you know (laughs) and then we might drive for three or four days it took us 30 days to make a three day trip, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. <laughs> She'd say, Why don't you pull in here and ask for some directions? I said, Then they'll know we're lost. I don't want anybody to know we're lost. And, you know, we got busted as soon as we crossed the California line, man. Because uh, she was hanging out of the car, you know, we had no mirror on the right side of the car. I knocked it off. So her job was being a rear-view mirror, you know. (laughs) Cops that California Highway Patrol said, we don't have human rear-view mirrors in California. (laughs) I I got Oklahoma plates on the trailer and the car, you know, so I'd always plead ignorance, you know. know? (laughs) The biggest awareness I had when I went from Oklahoma to California was in Oklahoma you could drive with an open container. You know, you, as long as you wasn't too drunk to get out of the car where you you could drive with an open container. And boy, when I got to California, they don't like that at all. Uh, <laughs> you know. I uh, had some change. I've got a drunken uncle, got me a deal on a house. We moved in this house. A bunch of hippies living next door on one side and a motorcycle gang on the other side. You know, just like old home, man. You know, wherever I go, there I am. And I'm the first one to get there. And, I, you know, we attract sick, attract sick. So I found a deal and moved into this house. And... Set up a little uh light housekeeping, and, uh you know, I went off and went to work in the oil fields. Uh God told me I could he'd get me a job in Louisiana working offshore, so I went down there and worked a while, and then I'd come back, and then I went to Alaska. And, uh, I remember I was on a rig in Alaska. I was working Derrick's, and uh I know there ain't no oilies in here. Any oilies in here? Anybody know what a rig is? Yeah? Well, it's tall, and it's way up there, and it's windy. And in Alaska, it's real cold up there. And uh, and they run a block down, and a plane flew in, and I yelled down there and said, I need to come down and get my coat. And I came down off the blocks and took three steps towards that crew plane, and the guy says, where are you going to get your coat? And I said, my coat's in Amarillo, Texas. <laughs> man, oh, man. And I just worked in the oil business, uh, run all over everywhere, you know, uh, all over the world. You know, we'd drink. Everybody, you know, covered for each other and this and that and the other. I'd run back in home and and uh, hang around there for a while. The hippies, they next door were dropping acid, taking their clothes off, laying in the front yard naked, watching the sun come up and go down, you know. Kind of interesting. I'd never seen nothing like that before, you know. And uh, well, we just got sicker and sicker and sicker. I'm telling you, just sicker than it. It never gets better; it just gets worse. I remember when it cost fifty bucks to get out of trouble, then five hundred bucks to get out of trouble, then a thousand, then five thousand. You know, and I'm just whipping and riding, I'm just bashing and slashing, and it's just I'm a violent drunk. Violent. I don't know why. Because i was scared, I guess. There's two things that made me violent back then, as I see it. I was scared, and I did a lot of speed. That's a bad combination, you know. And, uh, but it enhanced my drinking,
0: see, <laughs> hey?
1: and, uh, but, but when you're running with violent people, uh, everything's violent around, it was like a combat zone all the time, and, uh, we never had a fight in our house but what somebody wasn't, you know, fighting for their life, it was just, it wasn't no temper tantrum, you know, and I had all these crazy guys in there, we'd just have fights, and they'd go out in the street, and we'd go to restaurants and have a fight in a restaurant, and just beat the hell out of everybody, and roll on out the front door, just. Oh, man, and uh, Sue was super violent. Fight, fight, kick, slash, hit people with their shoes. Had them little funny marks on your head from the heel of a high heel shoe. A <laughs> guy, guy said, what happened to you? He said, you look like you got in a fight with a hammer. you know. And uh, crazy things. Had all them claw marks all over you from the fingernails. You know, claw you. I mean, that ain't fair. <laughs> you know? That ain't right. You know? That's hard to explain, and i you know people say well, I never hit a woman. I'll tell you what, you never hung around the ones I hung around.
0: <laughs>
1: well, I'm, hey, he knows. that. I'm telling you, they fought. They'd just punch you and kick you places, and it ain't fair. <laughs> Terrible. I mean, but we were young and we healed quick, you know. And uh, would do crazy stuff because I'd try to get her drank, She couldn't. She'd throw up. You know. And uh, I'd have about eight, ten guys in there in the living room drinking, and she'd run through the house naked. And uh, people say, "Who was that?" So well, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I asked her later,
1: I said, "Why'd you do that?" She said, "Cause you never pay any attention to me." <laughs> Anyhow, I ended up in front of a judge, and the judge was talking to me about me, and he had the right guy. And I forgot what I was in there for, cause I ate my book and slip. And uh, and so he said, uh, well, uh, we're going to have put you away. And back then they just started some kind of a court card thing or what have you, and the judge was in AA. and yeah, I didn't know that, of course. But I was sitting in a, in a hallway chained to a bunch of other guys, and some guy came along handing out uh, Alcoholics Anonymous pamphlets, little pamphlets. I didn't know what it was. I was doing B&B myself. But I, I may be sick, but I'm not stupid, and I took that pamphlet. I might need it later. It had something to do with rehabilitation, and I, I needed something. Because I got in front of that judge. He slammed that thing down, said three to five, and I held that pamphlet up. And he said, oh, you want to go to AA? I said, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I had some people in jail that I owed money to. I did not want to go there. I didn't know where the AA was, maybe, but I knew that I didn't know, so I would take a chance. <laughs> See? And so they had a guy come and get me named Ivan Miller. Ivan Miller was over 25 years when he came to get me, and he looked like he's drunk that morning.
0: <laughs>
1: he was a machinist, had them hands all crusty, you know, and stuff. And uh, you shook his hands like shaking hands with a wire brush, and uh, and his knuckles drug along, and his eyes were all droopy. He said, "I'm Ivan." I said, "The hell you say, you know?" I
0: was
1: hung over. I had I'd been in a fight, and a guy hit me upside the head with a crescent wrench, and I'd Spent a Friday night in a jail ward and on a gurney, and got my ear all sewed back on. Had this big old bandage on my head, and a, you know, blood-soaked ear muff, and and uh, no underwear, no socks, and traveling pretty light. You know, no identification. <laughs> I figured, well, they know me here. I don't need to have any identification. You know, I had so many social security numbers and driver's license numbers. You know. My whole curriculum looked like a road map, you know. I had so many different uh uh characters that I'd played that uh I could pose for a family portrait all by myself
0: <laughs>
1: You know how you get them The church has them pictures they take, and we'd always run over to the church and get our pictures taken. We had maybe six, eight different church pictures over at our house on the wall, and uh you couldn't there was no two of me alike. You know? And uh you know, it's hard for Jesus to find you if you're hiding out.
0: <laughs> and uh
1: I'd been baptized so many times my daughter said, Daddy, please don't make me do that again. Look at my skin, it's all crinkly from being in that water. You know. And uh so old Ivan Miller got me and he got me an old beat up El Camino and he drove me around, you know, I said, hey, there's AA Club, you know, here's the AA meeting and uh and my home group Dog on the roof was at Ivan's house. He did not take me over to his house and say, here's your new home group. He didn't. He, he sensed right away that I wasn't through. Something about them old timers. They can sense that, you know? And, uh, he took me home, let me out. I went and laid down on an old vinyl couch and, uh, my ear muff stuck to it and Sue had been to see a new lawyer and he said I should go to AA. So, you know, uh, she come home with a new idea and I let her think it was her idea. I didn't tell her I was on. You know, the judge was going to watch on me. And uh, back then, you didn't get to let your, uh, you didn't get a card. They called it a court thing, but you didn't get to let anybody sign it. You went back to see the judge regularly, to see. He sniffed you, you know. They didn't take urine samples there either. He sniffed you, looked at you, you know. And, uh, you know, some of that hands-on type of jurisdiction.
0: <laughs> and uh,
1: and I told her, I said, well, all right, I figured it'd come to that. And so I said, "There's a meeting over here." So long, about. I said, "It's 8:30 to 10. 8 o'clock." She come in there and got her butcher knife out and whipped it up on me and said, "Get up, we're going to go to the meeting." I had some reference points there. I I said, "Yes, ma'am." And
0: yeah.
1: peeled me off that couch and uh, now I'm going to tell you what it's like in my life. My house is painted four different colors because I lost interest quick. You know, <laughs> had good intentions, but I lost interest. And uh, it wasn't, you know, bizarre colors. One was kind of light brown, one side was kind of dark brown, one was kind of light yellow, and one side was kind of bright yellow, you know. And one, well, the roof was kind of, you know, where we threw all the old paint. And uh, <laughs> But uh, our family wagon was a Pinto, kind of one of them baby poop brown Pintos, that, you know, only made them a couple of years there. Had them holding a muffler and went down a road crooked, no reverse. You had to drive up through the hippies' driveway and out across their yard to be in front of our house. Uh, I don't want to paint a picture like we were different, (laughs) but most everybody on my side of the street's house looked kind of like that, too, you know? You kind of fit in, blend in, and, uh, you know, my dog had chewed all the hair off his body everywhere his mouth had reached, you know? He looked like a laughing hyena. The cat's tail was His whole body was puffed, you know? My kid looked like a wounded animal, had her chin on her chest, hair in her face, that old rotten eggs in the line in her coat from last Easter. And, uh, you know, and Sue wore one of them, uh, uh beehive hairdos, you know, where you wrap it way up and put all that spray net on it. She put a can of spray net on it. I lit a cigar next to her one time. She just turned blue.
0: <coughs> <laughs> had to throw my coat over
1: But the wind in the old pinot was half down, half up, you know, and her hair would blow out. So,
0: uh,
1: We got in the old pino, the inside of that pino, the dog and cat had shed in there, and then they'd lick the windows, so it looked like there'd been a hog slaughter inside of that car.
0: <laughs>
1: we go over to this church for my first A&A meeting, pull up out front, big AA sign out front, one door in, one door out, same door.
0: <laughs>
1: I looked in there, and people were laughing like we are, and they dressed up, and I, my first thought was, well, I've sunk to the bottom now. <laughs> <laughs> That's called low bottom snobbery.
0: <laughs>
1: and, uh, so, uh, <laughs> Sue sensed my approach avoidance and whipped that knife up and said, What time's the meeting over? I said, 10. She said, I'm going to tell you something, Ace. If your ass comes out of that door at 10, I'm going to gut you. Uh, well, you can keep me in an AA meeting. You got a crazy woman circling the outside perimeter with a 12 inch butcher knife. I might be sick, but I ain't stupid. I ain't going to leave. And, uh, I went to one meeting a week for about four months, beat the deal down at the courthouse, you know, got all got everything straightened out, and, and I got drunk because I'm an alcoholic and I wanted to drink. There's two kinds of people go to AA. People go to change the conditions in their life, people go to change their life. And I just went to change the conditions in my life, that's all. And uh, I didn't get a book or any phone numbers. Nobody asked me if I wanted to ride home. After the meeting, if sometimes it would be real me and make me stay over an extra hour, I'd just be sitting out there on a on the steps at the porch, nobody asked me for a ride home, you know. They could tell I wasn't, you know, I'd go to a meeting drunk and drink a bunch of coffee and sober up. Sometimes I'd go to the meeting sober and go get drunk at the coffee break, and, you know. You can go to AA drunk, they don't mind, you know. I never disrupted the meeting or anything like that much, you know. I'd I'd listen to something if I didn't like it and I was drunk and an AA meeting. I'd just go outside and sit and listen to them laugh and have a good time in there and just think, nah, yeah, they know, they're plastic, you know. And, uh, boy, that's lonely out there, I tell you. <laughs> and it gets worse. It don't ever get better. And, uh, you know, you're a loser then. There's nothing worse than having a head full of AA and a belly full of booze. You know you're a loser, man. <laughs> you know. Low self-worth. What do you mean, man? You know. Depressed? Nah. I give depressions. I don't have them.
0: <laughs> yeah, you
1: know, when you're a loser like that, you give depression i tell a guy, you go drink, you'll end up like me. I'm telling you. But I'd stand in my house, take a drink off that bottle, look down the hallway, a nine-year-old girl's watching me take a drink off that bottle. And she didn't run down and get me by the leg and say, Daddy, come play with me. She'd look to see which direction I was going, so she'd go the other way. And uh, I know what it's like to stand in that bathroom, putting that stuff in me, and have my daughter looking through a hole in the door in the bathroom and seeing a reflection in the mirror behind me. And... uh, You know, I, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt this thing's got me. I don't have it. I knew that what I was putting in me had me. I knew there was something screaming two inches behind my belly button. I don't know how to stop this thing. Don't you understand? I don't want to be like this, but there's something inside of me that made me index and pick it up again, pick it up again, and pick it up again. I did not understand the phenomena of craving. See? I had a disease. I had a phenomena of craving. An obsession is an idea that overpowers all other ideas. And we can only afford one obsession at a time. And I had an obsession with alcohol and whatever went with it. I know what it's like to have the only money in the house is in my daughter's piggy bank. I crawl on my hands and my knees down the hallway and go in the room where my daughter had her piggy bank and drag her piggy bank out up from underneath the bed and break it. And uh, the alcoholic ego. I'm separating the pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters because I ain't going to be showing nothing but silver when I go to the liquor store or the connections house. And that little girl hiding in the closet behind me watching me steal her money. And the best uh, daddy I could be that day is to let her shoot out behind me, uh, without, uh, you know, inflicting any more pain. I know it's like to come in off a 10 day run and I'm in a blackout and i laying on the couch with a nine shot 22 laying on my chest and my daughter brought a dog, stray dog in there and I come to and that dog's licking my daughter's face. That dog can love my daughter more than I can love her and I shot the dog right in front of my daughter. Killed it six inches from her face. And her mother standing six feet away. And nobody said anything because if you show any kind of weakness, you're next. See, that's terrorism. You want to know what terrorism is? That's alcoholism. And if you ain't been there, baby, just keep doing it and you'll get there. And then some. Maybe some of you are the kid in the closet. I don't know. But I hope you don't do that to your kid. But that's the way it's got to be. It's got to be. That's my story. And that's where we took it. We took it that way. We took it to the point where we had no running room. No run room, nowhere to go. We ran out of friends and enemies at the same time. There was nobody to call, and uh, nobody wanted us. A twelve-year-old child was comforting her mother. a twelve-year-old child was the only adult in that home. The only person, but by the same token, like I said before about my family, a twelve-year-old child is the only thing in that ho- home out of three people that had God consciousness. There was never a time in my worst drinking. In our worst I- insanity, that at least somebody in that house had God consciousness. And that's true today. In our family, there's three of us. And and always one of us in God consciousness. The only God consciousness was in that home was in that little girl. And I know that today. She does not hold it against me because of what I had to do. And she still goes to meetings of Alan anon because I'm the alcoholic in her life. And she is a survivor because she came through that and grew up there and got out. But at that point in time, we didn't understand. We had no idea what was wrong. I did not understand the phenomena of craving. There's well-meaning people in Alcoholics Anonymous who will stand at these podiums and tell you that the main problem centers in the mind. Do not forget it's the drink they pick up and put down their throat that gets them drunk, not the thought. It is a threefold disease. Physical, mental, and spiritual. And I can assure you that a lot of people take things out of text. And I share this with you because I am the type of an alcoholic that the phenomena craving is much stronger than the mental thought I've ever had. And the phenomena craving kept me drunk for years, and I didn't understand why. Only by understanding the phenomena craving was I able to forgive myself and understand that I had alcoholism which has a phenomenon of craving. And I can assure you that today, standing here right now, the animal's in the cage, but the door's not locked. And I can pick up anytime, anyway. Comes at me all the time. And I knew not that information. And no matter what I did in Alcoholics Anonymous, I still didn't understand. And I had to go to the point. My last deal, I ran a deal tried to get some money. I was in debt and uh, it didn't work out. And I got in more trouble. And so I came back to AA, back to AA. If you keep drinking, you'll come back to AA, back to AA, if you don't die. And I had to go back to AA. The difference was that when I came back to AA, they detoxed me. I mean, detoxed me. Nothing, nothing. They detoxed me completely. I said, how about some hard candy or maybe a Valium or two? You know? I said, no, eat a banana. You need potassium. You know? I'm so grateful that 27 and a half years ago, they didn't diagnose me with something else. They said, you're a sorry, no good drunk. And we've got a solution for you. But first you have to quit drinking and using. And they detoxed me. They put me in with 39 other people. And, and I walked three steps and laughed, walked three steps and cried. And I sniveled. I pleaded and begged and nobody paid any attention to me. Give me a banana. Have a banana. (laughs) Shut up. I was angry. I was angry and uh, just full of crap. And I I didn't come to that AA detox and have the burden removed. I wanted to drink and use all the time. All the time. Anybody else have me, how are you doing? I said, I want to drink. That's how I'm doing. But I'm not going to right now. And uh, they said, well, you only have to do it one day at a time, and I knew they were lying. Don't give me that one day at a time. Crap, I know this is forever.
0: <laughs> yeah? <laughs>
1: at 11 days, detoxed, I detoxed again. I, I, I uh, come off of something else, man. I, I was doing pretty good 11 days, and at 11 days, uh, uh, you know, I detoxed again from something. I just had to, ext- screaming Mamie, you know, ding-a-ling-a-ding-dong-ding-dang-ling-long. I'll tell you, baby, I was going. I'm telling you. And uh I don't ever want to forget that. I don't ever want to go through that again. I've had some resentment. I mean, really resentment in sobriety. But I'll tell you what, I just think about detoxing and they just kind of flatten out. You know? <laughs> Just kind of flatten out. And... Uh, you know, everybody left me out all this money. I owed these people four million dollars. I had stuff I'd stolen and hid, and I couldn't remember where it was. And I had a house I bought for twenty thousand. I owed a hundred and fifty on it. You know, <laughs> built about six patio covers. You know, and uh, Aetna and Fi and, uh, and Navco finance. I was a gold card carrier where I owed each one about fifty, sixty thousand dollars, carrying about nineteen percent interest on that good money. Had nothing to show for it. Nothing. Nothing. And, uh, you know, these guys came in there and, uh, they were from a uh, hospital institution, uh, uh, you know, they had a, have, in California, they have a call H&I, hospital institution people, pe- volunteers who go in. These guys from AA came in there, a little guy named Rotten Ron came in, and, and, uh, he was just so happy, and, and he just, I just, I just, I just so happy. I said, uh, so, so what? He said, well, i am your new sponsor. <laughs> I said, I hate you. (laughs) I wouldn't even drink with a guy was like you. And he says, That's all right. I hate you. I hate everybody though. And so uh, he was my new sponsor. (laughs) uh, My last day in detox, they put 39 of us in a circle, and they let us take each other's inventory because we was about to get out of there. And so uh, funny, I got a sense of humor. They started on the other side and went around. All 38 people said that I was going to drink just as I hit the street. Gave me my first AA resentment. And, uh, you know, they were so convincing that I was going to drink since I got out of there that I almost voted for them, you know. But uh resentments are good for some people because I stayed sober on that for a year and a half. And because uh, I am not going to drink, I don't care what. Uh, at one year sobriety, there was only 11 out of 39 that were still sober. And sometime uh, less than 20 years of sobriety, I'm the only one left. The one that was least likely to succeed. There was some good people. There was some beautiful people. There was some rich people. There was some really uh, committed people. All kinds of things. But I'm the only one that's still sober. And most of them are dead 27 and a half years later. See? So that proves one thing. It's not about the vote. And this is not a popularity contest. See? I don't have to please everybody around here. I came here to get sober and stay sober. And if I change, well then, uh, maybe I'll get a friend.
0: <laughs> you know?
1: And, uh, and this rotten Ron come got me an old van, had the uh, milk cartons in her plastic. Uh, he, uh, he said, get a, get a seat. And I grabbed a plastic milk carton, a bunch of other bent fenders in the back, and he took off, and we're sliding around in the back, and a 300 pound hamburger fell on top of me. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm mad, but I'm crying, and uh, took me home, and he said, you know, I'll be back and get you, and I went up the door and knocked on the door, and Sue came to the door, and I said, i got to go to a meeting of alcoholic Thompson every day for the rest of my life. What are you going to do? She said, i got to go to Al-Anon, the kid's going to Alley Teen, the dog's going to Alley Dog, and the cat's going to Alley Cat. What are you going to do? And, uh. I just started going to meetings. I was crazy. I was just crazy. I had so many problems. I guarantee if I got what I deserve, you better not be sitting next to me.
0: <laughs>
1: and uh the people wanted to kill me, and it wasn't paranoia. It was real stuff. They wanted to kill me. I was whining about this guy over in a town about 40 miles away, and I told Rotten Ron, I said, that guy wants to kill me. I know he's going to kill me. I know he's going to kill me. And uh, he said, go over and tell him you're an AA, you're sober, and you'll make it right. I said, what? <laughs> I said, I'm tired of listening to this stuff. And uh, so I got up, and I had an old Chevy pickup, and I got in it, and I went over to this guy's house and went up and knocked on a door. And uh, he come to the door, scared him to death because I was standing at the door. I said, I'm an AA, and I'll make it okay. And I turned around and ran like hell, ran <laughs> back and jumped my old truck, fired her up, and went back over there to the meeting where my sponsor was, and I ran in sitting next to him, and he said, I thought I told you to go to Whittier. I said, I did. He said, you did? I said, Yeah. I told that guy, I mean, hey, hey, and I'll make it okay. He said, you did? And he didn't kill you? And I said, no. He said, I'll be down.
0: <laughs> now I got it
1: down. Now I got it. I figured it out now, man. They send you out to try it. If it works, they try it. I know how it goes. It made me secretary of this meeting. Didn't have no money to buy cake, so I made a cake out of plaster Paris. Solved that problem. And... uh I said in that meeting one day and this weirdo come up next to me wasn't short enough to be a midget tall enough to be a man weird guy had hair everywhere had his old hat on and he had a pair of shorts on he painted his feet black so it looked like he had socks on so he didn't have to do laundry
0: <laughs>
1: he stole the meeting money last night and uh, said he wasn't going to give it back and he told me he had to keep doing it until he got it right you know and uh, I said what do you want and he said will you be my sponsor and I said oh man come on and uh, I went over to my sponsor. I said, see that guy over there? I said, he asked me to be my sponsor. I'd be his sponsor. And uh, my sponsor said, yeah, I know. I sent him over here. Get over here and Take care of him. I thought, what did I ever do to you? Said, get over and get that guy. And I got him in my old car. And away we went, started going to meetings. And he started running all this sick stuff. Hey, how about this? And he'd tell me something. Sick, 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 sick. And then lie a little bit sick. And then he'd say, You ever do anything like that? And I said, Yep. I had to lie a little bit just to get my sick stuff kick started so that I could be as sick as him. I didn't know when you're working with newcomers, you're supposed to bring them up to your level. I always went down to the newcomer's level. The program of identity.
0: <laughs>
1: my sponsor said. When you're working with newcomers, you're supposed to bring them up. You don't go down to their level. You, I give you a new guy and in three days. You look like him, talk like him, and dress like him. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Got that guy. We went through the steps. He showed up in my house, you know, and he, we went through the steps and, uh, he couldn't read and he talked and I wrote. Had another spiritual awakening. I, I recognized he couldn't read or write, so. We'd ask God to come in there, and I had a couple of things I'd forgotten to tell anybody, so I just put my stuff in His. You know what I mean? <laughs> God don't care. He didn't care. I'm gonna tell you, you can hold on that stuff as long as you want to, baby. But whenever the the vessel comes by, be sure and deposit the stuff and let it go on. And uh, he hugged me and kissed me and said, "I love you," and ran out in the front yard and waved and said, "You know, I love you" in front of the neighbors and everybody. But it went from the head to the heart. went from the head to the heart that day. And uh, that's the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous. Is was and always will be, and that's what I've been doing ever since. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that every day has been a holiday and every meal has been a banquet, baby. I'm going to tell you, I had some rough times. Rough times. I wanted to stay sober, and I was willing to do anything. And those old-timers said you got to be willing to do anything that we say, and they've never steered me wrong. They've never lied to me. And I'm grateful for that. I had some old timers in my life, and God rest their soul, uh, they didn't steer me wrong. They told me that there were certain things I had to do in order to stay married to this lady, and I need to stay married to this lady to make my amends. And it, uh, that wasn't easy. Uh, in the first part of my sobriety, we had to we had to be apart from each other so that we could get some apartness before we could have togetherness. It's like aloneness and loneliness. We had to get some apartments and I'm grateful for that. She got in a program out and on. Our daughter went right to Alateen because I said everybody in this house gotta have a program. And if you don't get one, why move out? And she didn't have any place to go, so she went to Alateen. And I'm grateful. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful for that. And, uh, about a year and a half into her Alateen program, she came home one day and she was lit up like a Roman candle. And a little girl would come in there all ragtag and, uh, asked her to be her sponsor. And, uh, Simone was, uh, Lit up. And she went right from Alatine into Al Anon. Very busy, very busy person has never Sue and Simone and I have never had any vacations from the program. We've never had any time off. We've never gone for anything else but this program. We've never used anything else but the steps. We have never used anything else because I don't want anything else. I tried everything else before I got here. (laughs) See? And I want the bet. Alcoholics Anonymous was the beginning of all the 12-step programs. I don't need anything else. Neither did Sue. The Alcoholics Anonymous gave the Al-Anon's the 12 steps and they worked the same 12 steps. And so, uh, you know, that's the road we started down. It took a long time to, uh, to, uh, you know, go through things. At two and a half years sober, I became painfully aware of the fact that I just may never drink again. Ah. <laughs> oh. And it also became painfully aware to me that I had some character defects that was going to try to get me drunk for the rest of my life. And I have some real shining, glaring character defects. But the amazing thing is, a character defect is not a character defect to me if it don't bother me. It may be driving you nuts.
0: <laughs>
1: but if it don't bother me, it ain't a character defect to me. See? And uh, my character defects are my greatest asset. My character defects are my greatest assets. I've never prayed for one to go away. I've flopped them over and used the reverse side. If you turn them over and use the reverse side, they become assets and uh i I traded all those character defects I traded anger i i uh, I knew I couldn't uh hit anybody any anymore. That anger violence had to stop, and I haven't hit anybody or any kind of violence since may 11, seventy six because I turned it over and it became energy. I set up the chairs, I cleaned the cups I went to places. I, you know, worked around the house and did all kinds of things. It was energy. Anger was energy to me. And I turned that into an asset. I got involved. I was involved with the, the group, the group level. I started going into prisons and, and, uh, in very early, sobriety I lied when I had six months and said I had a year and we started going to prison. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that. I go into prisons all the time. And, uh, actually I'm more comfortable in there than I am in a room like this. I really am. And I, because I have identity, I'm not afraid of it. Sue and I have been going into, uh, AA and an Al-Anon meeting into a woman's prison for over 20 years and there's never been a dark night. See, I've never got a dime for that. I had to buy my own gas in my own car to drive and get people cleared to take them into the prison, sitting in the waiting room that all the church people can walk right in and they strip us naked and then we get to go in and have our AA and Al-Anon meetings, but, but it's, uh, it's a form of service. The insurance on the car, good tires on the car, so that we can go do those panels. I didn't get into anything or apply for anything or go get any kind of a degree or anything or start a step house or recovery unit or a mission or nothing. I just went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and was just a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got involved in the intergroup, World Service, and uh, got involved in convention, convention work because we could do that as a family. I was chairman of the Southern California Convention in 1984. At uh, oh, About seven, eight years sober, I got involved in that. I was elected because Sue and Simone were involved in that. And it was family recovery. We could go as a family. All the other entities were separate. And the intergroup, the World Service, whatever, we wanted to do something as a family. I had a family. I bought a family here, and I wanted family recovery. And so Sue was the chairman of the al You betcha! You don't have to sink down. If you're at the bottom, everything is up. See? And so we started doing I had to pay all that financial amends back. Man, I had to pay. took me 14 years sober to make my financial amends. And uh, my dad was the last one on the list. And I said, to my dad, I said, you know that list of money that I borrowed from you? He said, yeah. I said, well, my amends is I'm never going to pay you back. (laughs) And he said, I've already torn the list up. But I did have to pay him back. At 14 years sober, after I'd paid other things off, uh, I had to pay my dad. And I gave him a check, and he said, is this any good? And, <laughs> and they forgive, but they never forget, do they? <laughs> I mean, just action, action, working. I had to work. I, I always belonged to a union. I was a union member. I told Sue, even if I'm in prison, pay my union due. They, and she did. And I just uh, a few years ago retired with 42 years in a union. And I have a pension, and uh, at sixty two I started drawing my social security. And uh, you know, I started doing those things because I don't want to be a sad story. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to be a sad story. I was a sad story when I got here. <clears throat> I was like the story of the 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 father and little son out on, standing out on the farm there one day, and the sun was shining, and a road go- went by the farm, and they stand out there. This little kid seen this big car coming up, pulled up there, and the guy got out and came over and talked to the kid's dad, and uh, you know some money changed hands. He pulled the car down beside the barn. The barn was parallel with the road there, farm to market road going into town. And little boy meandered down there and watched this guy put a big old poster on the side of that barn, and uh, he went and asked his dad, Dad, what's that? And seen anything like that. So, well, it's a circus. In the old days, they had honkers and they'd go out and put these big Barnum Bailey's, uh, big colorful posters on the side of buildings and barns. And he said, one of these days, that circus is going to come to town. If you work real hard and do your chores, I'll give you money to go. And the little boy, would go down every day and look at those beautiful animals and beautiful people in their costumes and fantasize what it's going to be like to see those people in real life living color. He worked hard, came the day his dad gave him 50 cent piece. They'd go to town and see the circus. Little boy, boy walked five miles to town. When he got to town, the edge of town, the circus had come to town and, uh, they were making a parade down through the center of town. Little boy had never seen anything like that in his entire life and he pulled up and, uh, and he sat there and watched the parade. There was all the beautiful people and all the beautiful animals making the parade down through the center of town. The last person in the parade was a clown. The clown went by the little boy, he tipped his hat and the little boy flipped his 50 cent piece up. And the clown caught it. put his hat back on. The clown went down the road. The little boy got up and walked back home five miles. When he got home, his dad said, Son, did you see the circus? And the little boy said, Yeah,
0: yeah, Daddy, I saw the circus.
1: See, he didn't see the circus. That's a sad story. See, he just saw the passing parade. Alcoholics Anonymous is a passing parade of people. Passing parade. It's just the way it is. If it wasn't, we'd have to have this convention. If all the people that have been to this convention were here today, we'd have to have it in the Super Bowl somewhere like that. It's a passing parade. You can be a happy story, you can be a sad story. I was a sad story when I got here. And I don't want no more of that. I hung around with the winners. I hung around with people. When they got up podiums like this and talked, I wanted to know how they treated their kids. I went to their house. Sue and I went to Chuck and Elsa's house. We went to those people's homes and and saw what they were doing and ask them, see, what to do and how to pray. We had to get on our knees and pray. We had a big argument over which side of the bed. You know, well, I'm the man. We pray on my side, you know. And uh, now we get at the foot of the bed, see. We had to walk back through all the rotten, dirty things we did to each other. And uh it takes time. It takes time. Eight years before my daughter and I could... Eight years sober before my daughter and I could sit next to each other and, and know that everything was okay. But eight years is not too long to wait, man. See? That's not too long to wait. We have a good life. I just went to meetings. A ten years sober. A five years sober. I had a fifth year birthday. We had 360 people came to that birthday party. Huge party. Everybody brought gifts, bearing gifts to the great one.
0: <laughs>
1: five years sober, my ego was so out of whack. You could have just pushed me over the pen. And I love the old timers that just wait. They wait. They're so precious. They wait till you implode. You know, <laughs>
0: that
1: was in May and on July the 4th, we sat in our house with no friends. I had alienated ourselves. we were still going to meetings, but we had alienated ourselves from May till July. We had alienated ourselves from people because I didn't get an engraved invitation to a 4th of July party. You know, and Sue sat on my lap and said, Baby, this is like it was before. I'm going over to so and so's house, and I followed. And, uh, I had to really, you know, change some things, some attitudes, attitudes, because at five years sober, I could see me rocketing into, you know, all the things I'm catching up, I'm getting it, I'm, you know, I'm gonna get all the things I didn't have, and I'm gonna pay all the money back. And, oh man, just all those thoughts, see? And I'm going to meetings all the time, and at nine years sober, uh, at nine years sober, uh, the FBI came to see me. God, as I stand here, my brothers came to see me, and, uh, that was because they, they were after me. <laughs> uh, not because it's something I started doing in sobriety, it's something I never quit doing when I sobered up. I'd been involved with organized crime for over 20 years, uh, and, uh, I fit the profile. And, uh, at nine years sober, while well, they took all the files, everything out of our home, you know, my wife and daughter standing there, and I went to a meeting. And it didn't take me. And, uh, and I, uh, I had to go before a federal grand jury hearing at nine, ten years sober. And, uh, I had to go to an old timer and say, you know, what is rigorous honesty?
0: <laughs>
1: I ain't never dropped a dime on nobody. And you know what he said? Keith, don't answer the questions that aren't asked. Don't answer the questions that aren't asked. I'd always say, Well, I was there with you and you were there because of me and we were there together and uh to justify my behavior. And uh for the first time in my life I had to uh you know I had to stand up for my own uh wrongs. I was wrong. I was wrong. I went back and in inventory and I saw that you know if I came in Alcoholics Anonymous and quit doing these things. And then my character defects flared them back up and I started over again. Eventually, I'm going to convince myself that I'm not an alcoholic and I'm going to drink again. But if I came in alcoholic anonymous and I got character defects, bad habits, things that I'm doing, uh, then I, I can stop it if I don't pick up again. See? I can stop if I don't pick up. And I had to let go of these things. And it was just like a ten year sober. It's like, oh, God, I'm going to have to quit doing things the rest of my life. I mean, quit doing things. And Sue said, you're not going to turn into a wuss, are
0: you?
1: I don't think you need to worry about that. I had to make some new kinds of amends. At ten years sober, I had to make amends and say I was wrong for doing that and I will try my best not to do that anymore. Instead of saying I'm sorry and can we negotiate? And I did that because you were wrong. You know? And I had to make those kind of amends. It was just... And I had uh, 10 years sober. I sponsored 63 guys. And when I got indicted by the federal grand jury, they all left but one. The rats left the ship like it was sinking. And every one of those guys that asked me to be their sponsor because I bought ice cream after the meeting left me. And the only guy that stayed was a guy that was so new and so crazy he didn't know anything was going on except what was happening in his life. Uh, And, uh, he was a pool man and, and, uh, we had a pool and we decided to acid, uh, wash the pool we had to wash the pool so much that the rebar came through. You know, I mean? we ruined the swim pool, but we didn't swim in it anyway. So uh, we sold the house and went somewhere else, you know, gotta move on. And, uh, I got through that. I got through that without incriminating anybody else. And I figured they're gonna take me in there and, and treat me like a stool pigeon and everybody's gonna, you know, come down on me. But I got through that. I did not have to I, I remember I I was telling Sue, I've got to go through this. It's just part of the deal. I lost a good job, all kinds of things. I went from two hundred and fifty thousand a year to sixteen thousand a year. That's a social shock, folks. Hey <laughs> I went from Rolls Royce's and New Mercedes and all the toys down to a wino car and old Plymouth four door. Full of alky newcomers going to meetings. I mean, the Rolls Royce was full of newcomers too, but I was comfortable in that old Plymouth going to meetings. And, uh you know, I remember sitting there and uh, telling Sue, you know, they're not going to take away my dignity. I have worked too hard. And when you're 10 years sober and going through those things, it's hard to determine the difference between self-worth and ego. How do you know the difference between self-worth and ego? The ego is a, an energy driver. I'll get through this. And then the self-worth is like You know, what's going on here? But I know that every surrender that I've had, every surrender that I've gone through, the ego had to be deflated. And the ego would be deflated, but the self-worth never went back to the point that it was when I came in here drunk. The self-worth might go down a little bit, but as soon as I got through it and used the principles of this program to get through it, I started at a self-worth level there. See? And I could build it up. And those are words that we use for self-worth and You know, all those kind of things. But I'm talking about being able to hold my head up. I'm talking about walking down the street and I don't have to hang my head in front of anybody. I'm not ashamed of anything. I'm talking about a a level of prayer meditation that's just deeper and more uh, conviction inside of me. When I came here, I didn't understand. I remember standing out after a meeting and uh, a new guy was standing there and uh, and he said, I don't understand this God thing. And I'm standing in some clover. Or, you know, in a yard. And I reached down and I picked up some couple of pieces of clover and it looked like a four-leaf clover that I picked up. And I I, I held it to him and I looked and I a newcomer and I was new and I said, look at this. If there's no God, explain this. And the guy goes, wow. You know, that guy's still sober today and every time I see him, he says, man, man, when you show me that clover, I believe in God from then on. I like, gee, I wish I had him. You know? <laughs> but I... but. There was explained unexplainable things happened. Forgiveness. Forgiveness of my family, my wife and I. We fell in love with each other because we went through these things together. We went through menopause together. You want to bond love? Go through menopause. Yes! Try that on. You yeah. I mean, both of us went through menopause. And, uh, man. You know, I'd call my sponsor every morning and I'd say, All right, checking in, he said, pray that you don't commit adultery today. And then I called him at night, and he said, pray that you don't, and thank God you didn't commit adultery today. Every day for day in and day out. And he said, you have to listen to her. She's entitled to say what she thinks. I said, what about her fifth step? She's bringing stuff up that she did in a fifth step. I know she did, and she's whipping this crap on me again. he said, your amends is that you will listen to it and shut up. And uh, I knew he hated me. I knew he hated me. And uh, I've gone through all kinds of things in sobriety uh, that have been surrenders, Physical surrenders. You can't live like I did without damaging yourself. I damaged my body. I really did. I had holes in my stomach that was bleeding. I almost died of of, uh, bleeding. And these doctors, well-meaning doctors in sobriety said they needed to open me up. And I said, I think I'll get a second opinion. And I called an alcoholic doctor and... uh, and he said, well, before you let them open you up, why don't you uh, quit drinking so much coffee and see what happens. And I quit drinking coffee and I quit bleeding. And uh, I went through detox of coffee. I had another symptom, uh, but I quit bleeding. And at uh, 15 years over, I had to make a career change. I had to make a total and complete career change. Full of fear. And I remember I went and, and uh, put in an application. You know, we lie and had all the stuff, you know, that I could do that I couldn't do that I really thought I could do given a chance. And, uh, and I remember walking in this room and, uh, they, there was a room full of computers and people working on computers. I didn't even know how to turn it on. I didn't know what the cursor was. or the bug or the ding or the dong or what. And, uh, and they had a, uh, a desk over in a corner where you face the corner. And, uh, they had a desk right next to the printer in this room where all these people stuff was printed out. And he said, you have one of those. And I I wanted to take the the dunce desk, but I said, no, give me this one right next to the printer. And I took that that desk next to that printer and I literally taught myself how to run that stuff pulling up the waste paper that people were given. Within six months, I was training the new employees on how to run the thing. And I didn't even know how to say the words, you know. But I could run it, see. And uh, I went in there and I became the... uh the lead man and I worked with my fellow employees, and I treated them decent, and I showed up for work. I had some guys I sponsored work for this uh, major company, and we had to wear badges. And I, I said, uh, you know, I noticed if you don't, if you forget your badge, they give you one that says temporary. And uh, and I, I was temporary before I got here. I did not want to be temporary anymore. Thank you very much. And I remember telling one of the guys I sponsored, I said, I've never forgotten my badge. And he said, Oh yeah. I said, I've never forgot my badge. This guy pulled up my name and my number on a computer every day for two years without telling me he watched me and I never forgot my badge. I showed up for work. I remember thinking one time I had, uh, my boss was a woman. I'm married to a woman. You got to say that in California. I'm married to a woman.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> my daughter's a woman. Uh, my dentist is a woman. My doctor is a woman. My boss is a woman. You know, and I have to, yes ma'am. Yes ma'am. Yes ma'am. You know, and, uh, and it was okay. You know, it was okay. I had to go through operations. At one time I had polyps in my colon. They thought I had cancer. And, uh, you know, I, I went through that stuff. And we took care of it. I didn't have to get loaded behind it. I never had to take any drugs. And I had both of my rotor cuffs redone, and I had to go through that, and people in Alcoholics Anonymous were with me and those things. And uh, the only thing they told me is, don't have both of your shoulders operated on at the same time because you don't have any friends that would be willing to wipe your ass
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> And uh, <clears throat> And that's what I did. I got through it at twenty years sober, had to go through changes and make decisions to retire. Soon I were able to retire. We have to live on a fixed income. We have a home group and uh, we're very active and we have a place that we live in and we're very comfortable in those things. And we have a retirement because we worked and because we took care of business and saved and made our men And uh, you know, we have a good life today. We live a good life. And uh, sobriety is good. Sobriety is good. soon, and I are getting old together and uh, that's a good thing. We're getting old together and we get to help each other and, uh, she, Sue's having some physical problems and, uh, I get to help her. I get to help her. I, I get to be a support to her when she goes through those things. Our daughter had a little girl and, uh, Sue got to go, she lived in Italy and Sue got to go there and be with, uh, our daughter when she had that little girl as a mother should be. I've stayed out of those people's lives because our daughter married into a very old, old traditional Italian family, old traditional. Lots and lots and lots of money and power and what have you. And I've stayed out of it. I've stayed out of it. All I would ever want was for those people to treat my daughter as if she were their own. And uh, she went over to Italy to model in Milan and met a young man. And they dated for eight or nine years and they uh, uh got married. And then a few years later they had a little girl who was five last Saturday. And uh, at, at, at about uh, 12 to 18 months uh, old, wife, our daughter wanted... That little girl to meet her dad. She wanted that little girl to meet her dad, her grandpa. Now my daughter got that little girl on an airplane and flew for 16 hours, paid her own way, and came to Los Angeles, and soon I picked her up, and I, I remember soon I went down to the international airport, and, and, uh, they came in, and that little girl was a tiny baby, and I'm standing there, and, uh, and my daughter handed me that little girl and I danced around and i her eyes sparkled and I danced around like an old fool and people from all over the world standing there and every nation in the world and that thing. And I don't care, man. I got that little girl and she's giggling and she's just looking at me and she's not afraid of me. She's not afraid of me. See? What a gift. Oh, what a gift. I could have missed it all. All I need to do is get a resentment and walk out of there and go get a drink or try something different or whatever. I stayed right in the trench, baby, and I could have missed it all. And I don't get to miss it all. I get to be a part of it all. And that little girl loves me, and she puts her arms around me, and she's not afraid of me. And I believe if I keep doing what I'm doing today, years from now she will still be in love with me so much, and she's not afraid of me. She has all the DNA. Oh, she's got all the DNA. Uh-huh. She's got my character defects, granny's character defects, mama's character defects, and daddy's character defects. She is a ball of energy. She does all kinds of really wild things. And when they, you know, talk to her about it, talk to my daughter about it, my daughter says, well, just in her DNA, you know, and uh, I'm so tickled to death that she's alive. I'm so, so grateful that just not too long ago, why they had this birthday party and and uh, the Italian families, the Bertolotos and. And uh Grandma Bertolotto told my daughter that her husband had raised a bunch of crap grandpa had. And uh, Grandma Bertolotto said to Simone, There's only one man that's sicker than your man, and that's my man. And uh and that means, you know, your family. La familia, see, family. And uh that's all I ever wanted her to be, see. And that's uh she has a good life. I have a good life. Come share this. know, soon I've been doing this stuff for 25 years. We're going to come around here. People here have not seen us for 25 years. How sad it would be if I were to pick up. How sad it would be if I were to end this thing drunk or loaded on something. How sad it would be. You hear sad stories all the time. I want to be a happy story. I want to give you hope, man. I want to live this thing to the end. The end is just as important as the first 15 minutes. I'm hanging in here to the end, one day at a time. God bless and thank you.